For those of you who don't know me, my name is Angela. I am the uh, parish pastor of the downtown uh, service, the 5 p.m. service. And once in a while, I get to come here and hang out with y'all. Uh, and also, usually when Kevin's on vacation, I get to come and preach in the morning <laughs> to you all, which is what's happening now. Um, so you get me. So good morning uh, to those of you I don't know. So when I was told that I was uh, going to preach today, I was told I was preaching on Jesus. I have the opportunity to preach about Jesus. And at first I was like, great, Jesus. And then I was like, oh, Jesus, what am I supposed to do with that? How am I supposed to preach one sermon on Jesus? That's it. That's all I get. Uh, I mean, even non-Christians, people who have never stepped in a church in their life, already know something about Jesus, right? Like, most of your non-believing friends know something about Jesus, and probably like him. <laughs> most people like him. Uh, and I would argue that most people on this earth know who he is, either through culture or church, or by reactively shouting his name when something bad happens to them. Uh, so what am I supposed to do with one sermon? But then I realized that most of the people, even us, uh, know his meek and peacemaker side. That is what Jesus is known for. And they may even be able to recite a beatitude, right? Like, blessed is the pure in heart, for they will know God, right? Maybe, maybe they'll be able to do that. But I can almost guarantee you that none of them will casually mention that he holds the keys to hell. None of them. But you know who did mention it? Jesus. And that scary book that none of us like to read called Revelation. <laughs> Revelation 1, verse 18, Jesus said he holds the keys to Hades. All right? In fact, if you read most of the red letters in Scripture, which indicate that Jesus is speaking you'll realize how much of them are not emphasizing his meek and mild side, but completely highlighting his authority over everything and everyone. So today, with this great task, I thought it was important for us, important for our faith, to look at a side of Jesus that often doesn't get preached about because it makes us uncomfortable. And some of you may hate this. You may. You probably will. Most of you, maybe. But... We don't get to pick and choose which parts of Jesus we like. And we don't have that authority. <laughs> he has all authority because he's king. We just sang about it. Right? And if we call ourselves his followers, we can't see him as anything but the king of kings of heaven and earth. So if you'll stick with me, <laughs> you may still leave uncomfortable, uh, but... If this is my one shot to preach solely about Jesus all year, I have to make sure we fully understand who he is. And I hope at the end of this you'll realize that you need that, that side, that uncomfortable side of him too. So this sermon is going to need a lot of prayer, uh, so let's do that together. Father, I thank you for allowing a piece of you, your precious son, to be sacrificed for all of us. I thank you for seeing what we can't see. Thank you for giving us what we need when we, we push away from you and when we fail you constantly. I thank you for showing up anyway. I thank you for bringing Jesus to us anyway. I pray, Father, as we hear Jesus' full message today, the side that we often don't hear, 
I pray for, for it to weigh heavy on our hearts, but to sink, not just sit at the top and be brushed off. Let it sink within us knowing that Jesus is who he says he is, and he wants to be that in our lives. We give this to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So if you've been around church at least for this year, so the last month and a half, uh, you know we've been going through and will continue to go through a series called The Year of Biblical Literacy, which is really exciting, and it gives us an opportunity to talk about big concepts of Scripture and give everyone an overall perspective of this giant book called the Bible and our Christian faith in general. And last week we discovered that God anointed Abraham to be the father of many nations through his chosen people, right? Huge task, wonderful gift. He gets all these people, the anointed ones, the Israelites. And we left the Israelites knowing that Israel knew a king was coming and wanted a king to come, right? Wanted to make all things right on this earth, to correct the wrongs and set the world right. And they were desperately waiting for that power, And scripture told them he was coming. They were right to hope in the arrival of the Messiah, the anointed one. We see in Isaiah a scripture that we often usually, for some reason, only quote during Advent. Uh, We see in Isaiah 9, verse 6 through 7, For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, The increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forward and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's powerful. And we think that the meek little Jesus in the manger is that one. Somehow we can so clearly associate it there, but not elsewhere. I would be excited about this message too. But then in that very same book of scripture, still in Isaiah, but many chapters later, chapter 53, verse 3, Isaiah told them their king was coming, but he, it also said that they would reject him. Isaiah 53, 3 reads, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom the people hid their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. That's that precious one that we just talked about in the beginning of Isaiah. Same guy. And at the time of Jesus, the Jews, the Israelites, were under control of the Roman Empire, right? Their nation was occupied, and they were waiting for a leader to come and rescue them from this, to come and make things right in their eyes. The prophecies about the king of kings and the lord of lords, everyone is so excited because he's going to march in with his army and take them down. That was the plan in their head. But then what do they do when he actually arrives? They kill him. That's what they did with their king of kings. And now, knowing the Ark of Scripture, we understand that they were given what they needed, right? But with their limited perspective, they jumped right to the immediate need and could only see what was directly in front of them and were super disappointed with his arrival. Because instead of that power raging against the world, or even raging against the Roman Empire, which was their world at the time, it raged against them. And they're like, hmm, excuse me? There was no way an entire empire was ready for Jesus if his own people weren't. It wants, Israel wants the king it wants, not the king that it is given. They wanted Jesus to set up a kingdom, but they wanted to be its rulers. How does that work? So when the time came for Pontius Pilate, the Roman judge, in Jesus' case, when he was brought before, whether he should live or die, He asked the people, because he felt real weird about it too. He asked the people and he said, 
What do you want me to do with him? And they all yelled, crucify him. That's what we want you to do with him. It's found in Matthew 27, 22. And before we can figure out why they didn't love the idea of this type of king, we need to know who we're talking about, right? So who was this Jesus? Although Jesus doesn't come into the picture for us until the New Testament, the latter half of your Bible, he, we learn about him right in the beginning. He is right. He is present in Genesis. Uh, we quickly see in Genesis chapter 1, 26, that God is not alone. As when he is making us, making mankind, he says, let us make mankind in our image. He's not speaking from a singular person perspective, right? We know someone else is already up there with him. And then we learned about the fall a few weeks ago. Um, in chapter 3, verse 15, when God is very angry at the accuser, right, for deceiving Adam and Eve, super angry, he says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's Jesus. That's the first time we hear about him. And that's what we hear, that he's going after the accuser. He has no patience for the accuser. This is a fierce Jesus. And when Jesus arrives, when we see him, when, usually when we're more commonly talking about Jesus, he arrives in the New Testament and he gets baptized, right? The moment he gets baptized in Matthew 3, verse 17, God shines a light down on him and said, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And then his mission begins. So God chose Jesus, his son, to serve as that reconciliation between mankind so that he could bring us back to him. Because Israel had failed and failed and failed. We were too selfish. The entire purpose of God is centered in Christ and what he did for us. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We see that in the first chapter of John. The word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That's Jesus, right? He's there throughout the entire thing. We just get the pleasure of meeting him face to face later on. But for me, the best description of Jesus is not found in the Old Testament. It's found in the New Testament in a book called Colossians that Peter, I mean that Paul and Timothy wrote together. And so the reason that I love this, this passage so much is because they got to actually understand Jesus' works, right? Post his life. And Colossians 1:15 through 20 reads, and I don't even want you to look at the, look this up or do anything but absorb this right now. This is Jesus, okay? This is who we're talking about. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether things on earth or in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That's our Jesus. So now we know that Jesus is God's son, the Messiah the prophets spoke about, and who would save us all, right? That's who we got. But still, Israel is not impressed. 
I mean, God makes it pretty clear that he's the one. And they're still like, hmm, maybe. You know, being the chosen people must have been difficult at times. If you think your lineage is the direct lineage of the kingdom of God, you probably think at some point you're going to seem pretty cool to people, right? The people of Israel were chosen by God. However, due to their disobedience, due to their lack of love towards him, he needed someone else to come to restore the kingdom. They could no longer do it on their own. And on the surface, they knew that because they wanted a Messiah to arrive. But at a deeper level, they weren't ready to change themselves to make the kingdom possible. Which is why the Israelites assumed he would topple Rome and not them. And we talk about Israel not seeing Jesus as powerful, and I think that's crap. Complete crap. They just didn't like what was after them. They just refused to accept it. They just looked away. They knew exactly what he wanted, and they said, no thanks. And sadly for us now, we interpret Jesus as just this meek guy who cruised the earth, hugging lambs. Where is that in scripture? Someone find it. Okay? But Google a picture of Jesus and you'll see him hugging a lamb. And when we do this, it's a disservice to Jesus and a disservice to his character and who he is. Yes, all of that sweetness, all of those wonderful things you're thinking about Jesus are true. Without a doubt, true but it is not the full story. It only takes five minutes to actually read the words of Jesus to know that fierceness was actually his preferred style of speech. And when we do this, we underestimate the power of Jesus in our lives and underestimate the power of his authority. He is not our moral teacher. He is our king. So let's forget about all of those photos that you just went through in your mind of Jesus um, and look at what he actually said. Because Jesus talks about his power throughout his entire ministry. He never leaves anything out. He tells us everything he wants us to know. So let's start at the beginning of that ministry. Let's start in Matthew. So if you all have Bibles or e-Bibles, if you could turn to Matthew, it's it's the first book of the New Testament towards the latter half of your Bible. And we'll see why Israel is not pleased with this approach. Now, I'm going to be kind of cruising through this a little bit. I'll let you know where I'm at by piece. But just know I'm going to go through the first, everything that I'm telling you right now will be in the first few chapters of Matthew for you to go back and read later, okay? So after we realize the genealogy of Jesus, right? Um, We see Jesus' birth. We see them run away and flee for fear of life. And then we see the baptism of Jesus, that point that I just mentioned about God saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, right? So immediately after Jesus is baptized, he begins his ministry by fasting for 40 days. That's what he does. He says, this is lovely. I'm so glad you love me. I'm going to go not eat for 40 days now. And he goes, and someone else goes with him to the wilderness. The accuser, the devil, Satan. Call it what you want. He's the same person, right? Follows him and tempts him. Tempts him with multiple things. Tempts him with needing food. Tempts him with wanting more power. Even tempts him like Mufasa showing Simba the kingdom. Like, all of this can be yours. He's like, are you kidding me? I made this. (laughs) And at the end of 40 days, he looks at Satan and says, away from me, Satan. At the end of 40 days of fasting, I can't go four hours without food. Okay? 40 days. 
Get away from me, Satan. And then as we continue on, we're just going to keep going through Matthew. We continue on. Jesus begins to preach. The first things that come out of Jesus' mouth have to do with our repentance. He says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent. And that word repent has been a little bit misused. It's from the Greek word metanoia, which actually just means to shift your perspective. So he is striving for whoever he sees. Look, look this way. Please. That's what he says first. He's pleading with them. The kingdom of heaven is near. Don't you understand? Look the other way. And after he exhausts himself probably by doing that, he realizes that he needs some support. So he's walking along the Sea of Galilee on the shore, and he sees Peter and Andrew, and then soon after James and John, who would be his first disciples, right? These are fishermen. They're working. (laughs) He walks up to them and says, follow me. And they leave their nets to follow him. We don't even respond when free people try to give us stuff on the street. I mean, when people try to give us free stuff on the street, right? Like, I ignore everyone. No offense. But, like, as I'm walking. Like, and they just drop it. Imagine what aura Jesus must have to walk up to somebody and say, follow me. And then they say, yep, that's what I'm going to (laughs) do. Like, no turning back. They just went. And then he's going through and he's, he's healing sick people. He's doing all of these miracles that are amazing, right? And then we go to probably what people would associate Jesus the most, the Sermon on the Mount, right? That's what those Beatitudes are from, so people can pick up on them really easily. And so this is his first chance, his big, long sermon. All of these people have gathered on the hill just to see him. They want to know, who is this man? How can he do such miraculous things? And of course... When he's there, he does say things like, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God, for sure. That is, in fact, part of Jesus. But you know what else he says? He says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Thrown into hell, everyone. That's what he said with his first sermon. Same guy who just said, blessed are the peacemakers. And he continues. He says, no one can serve two masters. No one. You cannot serve both God and money, right? Or God and fear. Or God and lust. Or God and self, right? God in anything doesn't work. And probably my favorite passage of all this is in um, 7... Verse 25, he's talking about do not worry. This is a very long sermon, y'all. You need to go back and read it all, okay? Um, verse 25, it's, the subtext is do not worry, right? <laughs> From this authority that he's speaking, he says, what are you worried about? Don't worry about your food or what you will wear. And I just imagine him at this point being like, and you're still worried about the clothes. What's with the clothes? Why are you all worried? Like... <laughs> I'm here, right? Worry about me, and I'll take care of those things for you. And then towards the end of this very long, very impactful sermon, in verse 7, 21, he says, you know what? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, 
will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. That's Jesus, y'all. He said that. This is, this is real. This is what he did with his first sermon. And the Israelites were like, huh? Come again? Can you repeat the part where you topple Rome? I missed it. Right? Whoops. You know, I think expectations are funny. And oftentimes they, they cause more pain than what's actually happening in the situation, you know? Because we expect one thing and when we don't get it, our world just shatters. And because Israel said they wanted a king, but they also wanted to rule the kingdom it was going to create, they realized they couldn't have both, and that frustrated them. And neither can we. And just so you know, if you're not super familiar, his fierceness was not reserved for this particular sermon, right? There are a few other examples still following along right in this first book of Matthew. We haven't even gotten far. We're on what? Chapter 8? And he said all of that already? This next story is, is pretty amazing. It's, it's in chapter 8, and it starts with verse 5. And it's talking about the faith of the centurion. Now, a centurion was a Roman uh, guard, a Roman officer, who had a hundred men underneath him, right? And this story, which I'm going to read to you because it's amazing, and it illustrates exactly who we need to be. When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came up to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and suffering terribly. Best part. Jesus says to him, shall I come and heal him? Mm, Okay. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word. And my servant will be healed, for I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, he turned and looked, he turned away from the centurion and looked at the people who were following him, all of these who had probably walked a long time, gathered behind him, thought they were doing exactly what they should have done, and says, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. He was telling all of them, they did not have the faith of this one man. Right? I say to you that many will come from the east and from the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He talks about a real place that is not with him. We can't ignore that. And more comically, in chapter 28, when they're all on the boat... His disciples are panicking because, you know, that storm's coming. Jesus is sleeping. He doesn't care. They shake him awake. Even before he looks at the storm, he goes, why are you afraid? What's wrong with you? Why are you so afraid? What do you have to be afraid of? Because even the winds and the waves obey me. In chapter 10, this is when Jesus is ready for his disciples to go out, right? They're ready for their mission. They've followed him enough. They're ready to go out and do things. So what does chapter 10 say? 
Jesus sent out the following with these, the following 12 with these instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. He had an entire world to save, and he went for his own people. Right? The Gentiles needed him. Samaritans needed him. Everyone else needed him. And he said, I cannot fix other people if my home is broken. They went straight to the Israelites. That's who needed a savior, and they didn't even realize it. And then with, I don't know if this was assurance or something, because they were most likely shaking in their boots, terrified to go out and be like, listen to Jesus. He said, don't be afraid of those who can kill your body. Be afraid of the one who can kill your body and send your soul to hell. That's who you fear. You fear no man. And so when Christians are scared, it drives me nuts. And you know why I think we're scared sometimes? It's because we don't realize what's behind us. And the good news about all of this is that he was serious. The meek and the stern parts. And we're just in chapter 10 of Matthew. There's a lot of good stuff in here. Read all the red letters. Write down all the sass, right? Because Jesus spits it, and he is serious. Because Jesus, living for Jesus, is not about a prayer of salvation. It's about a lifetime of dedication. That's what it means. And this is why all of that could, if this is your first time in church, this probably sucks right now, okay? And I get that. But I want you to know that those meek parts, those good parts, those sweet parts, that is absolutely our king. And these sassy parts and these fierce parts, also him. Right? He is our king. He gets to do what he wants, and we follow him. And the fierceness of Jesus might make us squirm a bit, but it's so important. We rely on Jesus' fierceness. We don't realize it. We rely on him being a righteous judge for us. Fierceness is a requirement of everything that he needed to do to fulfill the role that he has. And Jesus will overcome, and he'll do it sarcastically because we don't scare him, and that's a good thing. All of what I just read is behind you, right? Even the clothes thing. Stop worrying about the clothes. Um, And I, I think part of the reason... We have the same syndrome of Israel. Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I'm going to be honest, I think we see that sentence and we see easy and light. We forget that there's actually a yoke and a burden in that sentence. So yoke was actually, you can imagine it, right, if you've ever gone anywhere outside of a city, um, seeing plows, (laughs) something heavy on their back, usually made of wood. My Peace Corps volunteers in here know what I'm talking about. Um, made of wood, and they plow the fields, right? It's heavy. It's burdensome. It controls them. They are under its authority. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. We have to still take on the yoke. Like, there's no way around it. Jesus is king. He's not our moral teacher. You take on his yoke, and it is easy, and his burden is light, much, much lighter than any burden you are putting on yourself right now, for sure but it's still both. And 
this is exactly why we say here, why Amanda just read our mission here at church, saying we want to create a space where people can become authentic and thoughtful followers of Jesus. We don't say we want you to come in here and accept Jesus with a sinner's prayer. No one has time for that. We need you to follow him. Everything he said to do. We don't get the luxury of cutting anything out. This is why we take things like baptism so seriously, because Jesus did. It's the first thing that he did when he was ready for his ministry. It's to publicly say, I see you as my king, and I want to make sure everyone else knows that. Right? That's what he did. He did it for himself. He did it in honor of the Father to start his ministry. It's how we proclaim that we will follow him. In ending, um, Matthew, still in Matthew. Matthew is awesome, y'all. You need to read it. Um, Matthew chapter 16. It's really sweet because Peter was had the, the kindest heart and the sharpest faith of any disciple. And Jesus asked, who do people say the Son of Man is? And Peter replies, well, he asked a few questions. And then Peter replies that you are the Messiah, the Son, the living God. That's who people say. And Jesus knew that that came straight from God to Peter. And within that same conversation, Jesus says about what we're doing right here. You know what he says to Peter? And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Peter's faith, Peter is that rock. He had the faith to continue Jesus' mission, knowing that Jesus was his Lord and King, and he submitted to him. And he is, that Jesus knew that he was right, and we are proof of that. We're still here. We still show up. We still live our lives for him. He was right. We can trust him. The gates of hell can't stop him, and neither can we. So our best bet is to submit to him. Obey his wild words. Get baptized and die to self and then rise to follow him. That's why he came. Fierce love is waiting for you. And you know, I don't often do this with sermons, but if you're realizing that you've considered Jesus a moral teacher instead of your high king and you are no longer okay with that relationship, realizing you don't want to stay in that place, even if it's very uncomfortable for you right now to consider it, I beg you to reach out to our elders and to reach out to our lead team and pastoral team. We are willing and waiting and welcoming you to have that conversation because Jesus is king. And if I only get one sermon a year to tell you about Jesus, the most important thing to tell you is that he came to be our king and nothing less. All right, let's pray this out. Lord, we love you. Sweet, bold, fierce, powerful Jesus, we love you. We thank you for stepping in when we are not brave enough to step in for ourselves. We thank you for going before us. We thank you for being a righteous judge. We thank you that you are ruling over all of heaven and earth, and we trust you with that, Lord. Let us remember that you care for the birds of the air. 
how much more will you care for us? Father, put it in the hearts of everyone who hears this today, Lord, that you are there to be their king and that you want them in your kingdom. Let that ring true for everyone today. We love you. In your name we pray.